0: Hey, Sandra. Hi, Lisa. Kristen. Hey. Are y'all ready? Oh, you know we are. Then let's do it. Let's go to the movies, ladies. Welcome to Lisa, Sandra, and Kristen Go to the Movies, a podcast where three movie geeks talk to award-winning directors, actors, screenwriters, costume designers, and more about their work. We also dish on their favorite movies, movie moments, and share our own faves, too. I'm Lisa France, and I'm a senior writer for CNN Entertainment.
1: I'm Sandra Gonzalez. I'm also a senior reporter for CNN, covering TV and film.
2: And I'm Kristen Meinzer, former host of the Movie Date podcast, current co-host of the podcast By the Book, and author of So You Want to Start a Podcast, available in August.
0: This is the official podcast of CNN's TV series, The Movies. I've seen the series, and i got to tell you, it's amazing. It's really it really is. So after you're done listening to our podcast, you should definitely check that out.
1: A little bit later in this episode, we'll be talking to Ben Fritz of The Wall Street Journal. He's the author of the L.A. Times bestseller, The Big Picture, The Fight for the Future of Movies. But first, you know what's up. It's my turn to take on a classic film and recast it with actors from today. So Lisa, give me a film. I put the power in your hands
0: after previously giving you a real toughie. I'm going to tell you I'm ready to twist the screws. I hope hope our friendship can survive this. How about, okay, it's got to be good because you gave me The Godfather. So I got to give you something. (laughs) Wicked. Wicked. Oh, I've got a good one. Okay. The Wizard of Oz.
1: Aww. (laughs) That's okay. I love musicals. I'm up for this challenge. Okay. So you ready for it? Yes. So my first recast is going to be slightly stolen from NBC's live version of The Wiz because mm-hmm. I thought David Allen Greer did an amazing job as the Cowardly Lion. Yes, he did. Did you all see it? Yes, it
0: was really good. David Allen Greer is so good. He's good in just about anything that he does.
1: Pretty much. Yeah. So I, my first one is going to be a cheat, because I'm just going to like copy-paste into, like, he, he's he got to be in that.
0: Can I tell you that she already admitted that she cheated? I didn't cheat, by <laughs> <way>. the <laughs> Okay, I just wanted to make sure y'all heard that. Okay. that kind of game. Okay.
1: i got to give myself some thinking time, Lisa. Okay. Okay. Um, and then let's see. With the scarecrow, you know, gotta have someone with like a little bit of like nervous energy who can like portray that, right? Absolutely. So, I think on that one, I'm gonna pick um, Lynn manuel Miranda. Oh, I love that. Because he doesn't he have that like jittery like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Yes, energy? yes he does. But yes, he can he also does. hone it in. And he just has like the most sincere like you want to hug him. You want to like take care of him. Like he just has, I think, all the vibes of a of a scarecrow. Yeah, he does. Yes. I really want to definitely sing. Yeah, you can. he can. Uh, yeah. And uh, no doubt. FYI. Yes. <laughs> 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 Basically, musicals did all the job for me. I'm just going to steal from everybody's casts. Um Again, cheating ch- <laughs> just a cheater if y'all um, can't
0: tell i'm bitter <laughs>
1: <laughs> for the tin man i'm gonna go with somebody who's not known for musicals necessarily mm-hmm. but who definitely has some theater experience i'm gonna go with jim parsons jim parsons oh. hold on see the big bang theory yeah, yes. the big bang yeah. theory yeah. oh he he's in, he's been in theater before. Yes, he's done plenty of stage work. And as Sheldon, you know, he has that sort of rigidness about him that I oh. think would translate well I into see the Tin Man. I see it. Oh. I see it.
2: That, I can totally see that, too. I yeah. see it.
1: Um, for Glinda the Good Witch, I would pick Celine Dion.
2: Oh, <laughs> just I'm because... totally okay with that. I'm totally
1: in for it. Because say I'm doing the recasting, I'm assuming I would also be on set and I would get a oh, chance yeah. to meet Celine Dion. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's and so this is all self-serving. I'm a cheater and I'm a self-server. Yeah, you are. Oh, so yeah, I am gonna. I would go with Celine Dion. I don't know how good she's at acting, but the voice is there, lady.
2: Oh, I just yes. need
0: her to just stand there and just hit herself in the chest. Yes. Yes. With, yes. with her fists. Yes.
2: And her heart will go on. Her yes, it will. Which is what you need from a good witch. Yeah, you Absolutely. do. Absolutely. Yeah, you do. Because Absolutely. somebody
0: needs a heart. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. See what I did right there? Brought it back around. See? Wow. So for the big one. For...
1: Dorothy, these are not well, I guess they were kind of tiny shoes. <laughs> yes. I think they were They were Small big shoes, to big, fill. tiny shoes mm-hmm. to fill. Um, for this role, I needed to pick someone with the vocal chops, someone with just this like innocence, this pureness. Um, I picked Ali Cravalo. The girl who did the voice of Moana. Oh, oh, she's cute. And you might remember her from that Oscar performance where she got smacked in the face with a flag and just kept singing. You need that that perseverance for Dorothy, right? I can see it. Yes. Oh, she's lovely. Her voice is beautiful. That's an unexpected choice. She's very charming. Because even in the story, you know, she's from Kansas. People in Kansas look like all sorts of people. Yeah, they do. Yes. Like, let's let's add some diversity to the story. Um, I mean, this is a very
0: diverse cast.
1: It is. Mm -hmm. It is. I also picked a wicked witch in case y'all are curious. And that would be? Kate Blanchett.
0: Again, oh, no. right, Icy Queen.
1: She would be
2: divine.
1: She would be divine. Even though I was trying to think of a man to put in the role because I'm really over the whole like women wicked witch thing. Yeah. But I was like, Kate Blanchett, just because again, I want to meet her.
0: <laughs> oh yes. Always self-serving. I Always know. self-serving when it comes to these games. I like it though. Yes. This is my fantasy. Oh, it is yours. <laughs> it is it, it's totally yours. You can do what you want. I'm no totally judgment. here for this fantasy. Love
2: it. Um now before we bring our guest in, we just want to remind all the listeners out there that we love when you play these kinds of games with us so join us online and specifically the game we played earlier in our season my five movies and in this game you imagine you're trapped on a desert island you can only watch five movies the same five movies for the rest of your life on this island And we want to hear which five movies you would pick. So go to Twitter and use the hashtag my5movies. That's my, the number five, movies. And make sure to tag us at CNN Podcast so we can see your fantastic picks.
1: No judgment. (laughs) No wrong
2: answers. Maybe a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) All right, ladies. Are we ready for the interview? So ready. Yes. All right. I am so excited. Bring in the guest.
1: Ben Fritz is the West Coast Bureau Chief for U.S. News at The Wall Street Journal. He previously covered Hollywood for The Journal, The Los Angeles Times, and Variety. Ben is the author of the LA Times bestseller, The Big Picture The Fight for the Future of Movies. It's an in depth exploration of the modern era of cinema, largely driven by superhero franchises, sequels, and reboots, as well as a look at where the industry goes from here. Ben, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you for having me. Of
1: course. We're so excited to have you here. So in your book, you talk about the rise of this current era of Hollywood that we're in. It seems like when you're making plans to go to movies these days, it's like, well, do I want to go see a Marvel movie? Do I want to go see a DC movie? Or do I want to see a Pixar film? Um, Can you pinpoint for us the movie or maybe the moment that you think launched this era dominated by sequels and reboots and superheroes in cinema?
3: Yeah, you know, I think if... um, we're going to sort of uh, pick the moment when... Oh, you know, I call it the franchise age of filmmaking in the book. Um, mm-hmm. When franchises began to dominate Hollywood, and I would have to go to the beginning of Marvel Studios. Of course, there were franchises before that. Harry Potter, uh, the Dark Knight trilogy. Um, but the one that really saw franchises become the dominant mode of filmmaking was Marvel. And you see that with uh, Iron Man in 2008. Um and uh, since then, it's just accelerated. And Marvel Marvel's massive success has basically driven everyone else in Hollywood to try to copy them, and I think has really transformed the way people go to movies. And as you were pointing out, the way people decide which movies uh, to see if they're if they're going to leave their couch at all.
0: In terms of creativity and artistry, what would you say are some of the benefits from Hollywood focusing predominantly on these superhero franchises and blockbuster sequels? And, and what are the not so great things about it?
3: Right. Well, the the. Great. A great thing about it is it really um, has you know inspired a passion for people around the world. I mean, look at the massive success of Avengers: Endgame, which came out in May. Um, people get excited for these films. They love them. They feel they feel um, uh, like they know these characters. They care. They have to see every chapter. Um, you know, and so you see these, this massive success, and uh, um, and you see these massive cultural moments that happen around these films. Um, and uh, it, it drives, it's driven business success, right, for Disney, which owns Marvel and owns Pixar um, and owns, you know, the Disney ran for all these fairy tale remakes, um, like Aladdin most recently, for example. Um, and they own Star Wars, you know, it's driven massive success and profits. Um, other studios that have s- some franchises, you know, do really well with, with them also. Um, and it's really kind of given people a reason to still go to the movies at a time when, something I'm sure we'll talk about more, TV has gotten so good and there's so much mm-hmm. great content to watch at home, or and or on your on your phone or tablet, wherever you are, that you know uh, if not for these big franchises, you might wonder if people would go to the movies at all anymore. Um, right. So that's something that's fantastic. Um, but of course, the negative side is that it's really narrowed. Um, the the scope of what Hollywood does. You don't see many other types of films succeeding anymore. It's rare that an original film grosses more than $100 million domestically these days anymore, certainly more than a few hundred million worldwide. And so you see fewer and fewer of those types of films succeeding. And of course, the fewer of them succeed, the fewer of them that studios make. And so you don't see a lot of interesting original dramas or thrillers or romantic comedies getting made uh, for the the big screen anymore. Um, And I think for people who... Uh, who have great memories of seeing all sorts of interesting, weird, you know, films they never would have thought of in theaters growing up in the, back in, in the old days of the 20th century and early 21st century, um, that's a sad thing. And if the future is only going to be about going to theaters to see superheroes and big explosions and, and sequels and reboots and nothing else, um, I think people who love the cinema are going to be pretty bummed about that.
0: Do you think those projects are out there? Because I hear a lot of discussion about, you know, has Hollywood just run out of ideas? Do you think those projects are out there and Hollywood is just not backing them? Or do you think that, you know, Hollywood just is lacking in creativity these days because they don't really have to be?
3: Oh, yeah. It's just that the studios won't back them. There is no shortage of great new ideas uh, in in the entertainment industry. There are tons of writers and filmmakers and would-be writers and would-be filmmakers who have great new ideas. The problem is that the studios don't back them and it's hard to blame them. Um, You know, it's so rare that you see something like La La Land or Crazy Rich Asians um, or Dunkirk that's not not a sequel. It's not an adaptation of a comic book, and it grosses a lot of money. Those movies stick out in our minds because they're so unusual. Um, And the number of movies that uh, that want to do well like that, that flop, are more than you could count. Um, And it's happening more and more frequently, right? If the success rate for those types of films used to be 30 or 40%. Now it's 5 or 10% and these studios right. are businesses and they're owned by major companies that want profits and it's hard to blame them for uh, for, for, st- for sticking with what works and not taking gambles on things that usually don't work.
1: We could still also blame them though. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead
0: and
3: blame them. I'm going to blame there's a problem with yeah. Hollywood. Is on the one hand, these are businesses that are expected to make money, just like Procter and Gamble or Apple do, right? But on the other hand, they they produce our pop culture, and so when they're not pro- when they're not producing a diversity of interesting content, we get upset, you know. Mm-hmm. And we it has like a much greater import than if you know uh, the grocery store stops carrying your favorite brand of cereal. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but these are businesses. They're owned by huge companies that are public companies that have to make profits for their shareholders. And of course, don't forget, they, you know, they're making a lot fewer interesting types of films for cinemas, but they're making a lot more interesting types of TV shows and streaming mm. video content for your for your TV and your and your tablet.
2: But couldn't it also be argued, Ben, that these giant blockbuster movies, the price tag to make them is so ginormous, and a lot of these smaller films. They cost just a fraction of the price, so they can be profitable so much more easily. Because if your movie costs only $10 million or $50 million to make versus the $1 billion that some of these blockbusters might cost, isn't it easier to break even on those smaller films?
3: You know, you would think so. One of the most interesting things I found in researching my book is that the studios have done a lot of business analysis. And in most cases, uh, it's less risky to spend $200 million on something, that's you know, a sequel, then it is to spend $50 million or $20 million on something original, believe it or not. Huh. Wow. Mm. The odds of success are so much higher, especially globally around the world. And the other reason is that no matter how much it costs to make the movie, it still costs roughly the same to market it. If you're going to release a, a movie nationwide or globally mm. in theaters, you still need to spend $50 to $100 million on marketing. And it doesn't matter how small the movie is. If you want people to be aware of the film... You have to spend a certain amount on marketing to, to generate awareness, and that doesn't change no matter how, how little it costs to make the movie or how much. It and so sense. in that sense, there are a lot of fixed costs behind making a movie. Um, and they've given And the thing is the profit potential and success for a franchise movie is so high, right? Avengers just grossed something like two and a half billion dollars and may come close to three billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, those profits are massive right and even the most successful indie drama is never going to make you know a fraction of those kind of profits right right there's another thing i always forget which is don't forget that um these studios they don't just care about the profits on one movie what they love is a brand that they can do a lot with right so look at despicable me it's not just the one movie that makes a lot of money it's that okay now this is a franchise so we're going to have sequels we're going to have the minion spin-offs we're going to have the theme park attractions you're going to have all those minion toys it's a recurring source of revenue for years and years to come and that's what the big corporations that own the studios want you know e- even you know uh, a very successful original film um dunkirk right there's no dunkirk toys there's no dunkirk uh, theme park ride there's no dunkirk sequel it's one profitable film and you're done
1: You didn't get a Dunkirk toy? I got a doll. (laughs) I got got it in my Happy Mail. Did you get one for (laughs)
3: Christmas?
1: (laughs) So um, going back to a point that you made uh, a little bit ago. So with Netflix and Amazon sort of coming up in, in the movie business and really competing now with a lot of the traditional film studios, do you think that has become a place for some of those medium to smaller films that, typically would have ended up in the movie theaters, but are now on these streaming services. And do you think that that is a threat to some of these movie studios that kind of want to be doing that, but it doesn't make sense for their bottom line?
3: Absolutely. So you see a lot of original films going to Netflix, especially, which doesn't even release a lot of its movies into theaters. Um, These are the types of movies that are struggling in theaters. Studios have a hard time making. They used to do well in theaters. Now they don't. And for Netflix, it makes sense to put them onto a streaming service, right? And the best example, which I talk about a lot in the book, is Adam Sandler, right? He, for a Mm. long time, was a big box office success. And for Sony Pictures, which is the studio I really focus on in my book because of uh, all the material that came out in the hack, he was like a profit center. People there used to joke that uh, Adam and Will, Will Smith, built our houses. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So many successful films for that studio. That's what the executives at Sony would say. Can
1: they build my house?
3: (laughs) (laughs) And then over the years, you know, those movies started to perform less and less consistently. People didn't go to the theaters for Adam Sandler movies anymore. Um, People would rather stay at home and watch dumb comedies. As it turned out, they had more and more options on the streaming services. Um, And the studios just didn't want to make Adam Sandler films anymore because they were at minimum inconsistent and at the most just losing a lot of money. But there still are a lot of Adam Sandler fans. They just don't want to go to the theater anymore. So now Adam Sandler makes movies for Netflix. And he makes like two per year. And they consistently do well for Netflix. And Netflix has renewed their deal with him. They pay him a lot of money. They pay him close, I think, close to the $20 million he used to make per film at Sony. And they let him make pretty much whatever he wants. Um, And then his fans you know, stay home and turn on their digital device and watch those Sandler films. So that's just one example of a type of film that the studios don't make anymore and has gone over to Netflix. And there's so many genres. Another great one is romantic comedies had virtually died Mm -hmm. at the box office. People never went. Last summer, Netflix made a bunch of romantic comedies for young adults and teenagers, like The Kissing Booth. Um, There were several of them. They did really well for Netflix.
2: To All the Boys I Loved Before. So many good ones. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And I think what Netflix found in their data is they found that young women were searching for romantic comedies. They wanted to see them, and there weren't enough of them on the surface, because the studios hadn't made many in a while. So Netflix saw an opportunity to make original romantic comedies for this audience, to, you know, give them more of the content they wanted, and then they loved them. They, they Those movies were very successful, Netflix is making a lot more. It's another genre people don't want to go to the theater for very much anymore. And so, exactly, the more these films do well on Netflix, the more that the studios are essentially seeding the genre. They're saying, look, we just can't compete in this space anymore, so mm-hmm. we've, we're giving up Pretty much on romantic comedies we're giving up pretty much on indie dramas mm-hmm. we're giving up on adam sandler dumb comedies and w- what is what are the few things that they can do that netflix can't do well obviously big-budget superhero event franchise films. Right,
0: That makes me sad for cinema, because it feels like, to me, one of the things that makes this era of movies different from previous eras is that when you think about classic films, like, it's hard to imagine mm-hmm. that a mm. reboot or a movie based on comic book characters will become a classic in the same way that films like Silence of the Lambs, Goodwill Hunting, or The Godfather are revered. I'm curious what you think makes a movie a
3: classic. Mm. That's a good question. I think, you know... Something that makes it a classic is that, um, I guess it's a film that, you know, has a long lasting impact on the culture, right? It's not just something we're all talking about today. And then next week we move on to something new, right? It's something that comes out and it resonates, resonates with the culture. We keep talking about it. If you missed it in the theater, you want, you know, you got to see it. Your friends show it to you. One day you show it to your kids. It's something that has such Mm -hmm. an impact that you keep talking about it. And a lot of us did. We were, we have a conversation about it, right? So, um... Like a film like uh, like uh, Get Out, like last year, right, was right. a film that I think will be a bit of a classic. And if that had been on Netflix, it would have just came and went. And the fact that it was in a theater and we all went and saw it in groups and then we were all talking about it because we all saw it around the same time. I think, means it became a real part of the national cultural conversation in a way that a movie that comes and goes on Netflix and maybe you see it this month and I get around to it in six months and you never bother getting around to it because the algorithm doesn't suggest it to you. That kind of content doesn't impact the culture the way that a film, everyone's seeing in groups together and then you come out of the theater and you're talking about it and you tell your friends and they got to see it soon because it'll be gone from the theater in a month. That's the way that's that's the way a movie in, in a theater, I think, can really become a classic. And I am skeptical that we're going to get many classics out of netflix
1: Mm, i had to search really hard for always be my maybe i was like algorithm fail i love keanu reeves (laughs) i think they i I think they know my household too well They, they, they know
2: i watch all that schlock
1: all right we have to take a quick break but more of our conversation with ben fritz after this Welcome back. We're still here with Wall Street Journal editor and bestselling author Ben Fritz. So, Ben, before the break, you were talking about how because of Netflix and Hulu and Amazon putting out films these days, we're losing a little bit of that collective experience of going to see movies in a theater. But I was wondering, what's the first movie that you can remember seeing in a theater?
3: The first movie that stands out in my mind seeing is Return of the Jedi. (laughs) Um, I I would have been five years old, I think. What did you think of it at that age? That's that's like a very intense movie for a five-year-old. It is pretty intense, but um, it was it was so great, right, to see on the big screen, and you know, it's kind of the ki- the most kid friendly one of the the original trilogy with the Ewoks and everything. And it, I remember it was so spectacular. I'd seen the first two Star Wars movies, you know, at, at home on TV, I guess. And then the other great thing is my parents had just uh, broken up, right, which was a bummer. But I got them both to take me separately. I didn't. Tell them <laughs> Yeah, the first benefit I discovered from my parents' divorce.
0: Ben was a slickster at five years old, a total slickster. Yeah, A way to get your parents mm-hmm. to uh, to double dip.
3: So
2: smooth. So <laughs> Ben, continuing with the theme of firsts, do you remember the first movie that really scared you? Um, or do you not get scared?
3: Oh, I get scared. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's one of two things. One is, I know I saw one of the Nightmare on Elm Street films at home, and I didn't get through it, right? I was really always hanging out with friends, like a sleepover or something, and I couldn't finish it. It would just scare the crap out of me. Um, it was a long time before I could watch, like, a real horror film like that and sit through it. Um, in terms of the theater, though, I distinctly remember Jurassic Park, of course. And it was uh, not, it's yeah. not scary like Nightmare on Elm Street, but I remember being, I remember it being very intense, uh, when the, you know, when those T-Rexes were chasing the kids, um, and it was, it was, and because I was not at home, I couldn't turn it off. I couldn't leave the room. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was the most realistic visual effects, you know, I had ever seen. Anybody had ever seen, I think by a long shot. So yeah. I don't think any of us are
2: ever going to forget that shaking water glass. hmm. Yeah. That's one of the most terrifying Mm -hmm. movie moments I think of. And it's just water. It's just water shaking.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. But it will always stay in your mind. Yes. (laughs) A conversation that's been coming up a lot these days, Ben, is whether it's okay to consume entertainment that in the hashtag MeToo era we now see in a new light. It's what the kids like to call problematic faves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking of films with directors or actors who have had allegations made against them, or maybe a film that reinforces gender stereotypes. Do you have any movies that you used to love or maybe even still do love, but that now seem kind of problematic in some way, or you may see them in a new light?
3: Yeah, you know, I thought a lot about uh, Election, which is one of my favorite films. Mm. Yes. Um, with Reese Witherspoon? Is, but, you know, yeah. if you look... Exactly, right, but if you look, I mean especially after the, uh, the last presidential election, a lot of people were comparing Hillary Clinton to Tracy Flick, the reason's been character, mm-hmm. yeah, and you start to think of like well basically this overachieving young woman is sort of portrayed in like a, like there's something wrong with her um, and you know the the movies you could say it's a bit judgmental, certainly here's what I would say I, I think the film can be interpreted in a more favorable way, but I, I, I have rethought the way I see that character mm. as I've gotten older and I think become more aware of how, how ambitious women are often treated in our society. Um, I've come to uh, like Tracy more and I certainly think about her character differently. I think I used to really find her grating and, and kind of laugh at her for that reason. But now, uh, now I don't. So mm-hmm. I've definitely rethought that film a lot. I, I still think it's a good film, but I've rethought it.
0: Oh, well, we're gonna you know, we're gonna speak for women and say thank you, Ben.
1: Yeah, you're a good one. You're a good one.
3: <laughs> thank you.
1: So, we like to recast movies on this podcast and and take a classic film that and think about who would star in it now if the movies were made today. Hmm. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a, a tough one at you. Okay, if you were recasting the original Star Wars: A New Hope in 2019, who would you cast in the lead roles? Now, remember. Um, a New Hope hmm. is the
2: original Star Wars movie, the very first one. Of course.
1: So uh, if you were to recast Luke, Leia, Han, and Obi-Wan Kenobi, who would just stick in those roles?
3: Um, Well, Han is easy. I think Han is Chris Pratt. Oh! oh that's a
0: good Come answer. Come on, Chris Pratt. We like that. Any movie with Chris <laughs> Pratt, we could sign
3: Okay. Um, Tessa Thompson would be a good Leia, especially like a, like a little bit more of an aggressive, kick-ass Leia. Um, who's sort of that sort of really innocent Luke Skywalker type? Um, you guys want to jump in on the other two? I'm trying to think.
0: Um, (laughs) You want to phone a friend, I guess, I guess. You want to phone a friend? (laughs) You want to to try Obi-Wan Kenobi? Would that be a little bit easier?
3: Oh, you know who'd be interesting? Obi-Wan Kenobi is, um, J.K. Simmons. He can do no wrong. Although also, as I think about it, I think, I think if you want sort of the more, Uh, serene spiritual one, a spiritual version, you could go with Morgan Freeman. Yes, he would be my
0: first choice for sure. Right. Right. God always trumps everything else. That's a good one.
1: Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. For Luke, would you go young, like a young up-and-comer sort of? Is that one that you'd have to just find like a new person to do?
3: Yeah, and in in that sense... um, Tom Holland would be good. He's really good. I think. You know, Peter Parker has some traits in common with Luke Skywalker, where he's sort of this like sweet kid who um, all of a sudden has a has has a big world thrust upon him um, after an accident or after something that happens to him that you know comes to him. So I, I think I, I think Tom Holland would be good.
2: All right, Ben. Let's play another game with you. We call it. My five movies. And here's how it goes. If you could watch only five movies for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. only those five movies over and over and over again, like you're on a desert island, mm-hmm. which five movies would you choose?
3: Okay. Um, well, one has got to be something that I find hysterical and can watch over and over. So I'm going to say the Do remember the South Park movie. Um, oh, yeah. yes, it's of like course. A, it's, like a, it's a movie. It's a movie musical South Park, bigger, longer and uncut. Yes, uh, yes. That to me is one of the. That's one. That's a hilarious movie that I can watch over and over. Um, also in that category, but a little bit, with a little bit more to it, I, I'd say Ferris Bueller. I find really funny. Um, it's one of those movies I watched a little bit too young and was found really risque, you know, when I was a kid. Um, <laughs>
2: Skipping school?
3: I, I, so crazy. I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, I love, well, um, I love, so let's see, I love those. I'm going to say, I got to have a Christopher Nolan movie in there. I'm going to go with... Um, I'm going to go with The Prestige. It's a little bit underrated, I think, but it's I think it's maybe his best movie. And the reason I want to have it on the desert island is you can watch a Christopher Nolan movie 20 times and always discover something new in there.
2: Mm. Oh, I'm surprised you didn't choose Inception or Memento.
3: Yeah, Inception is the obvious, like there are literal, layer. yeah. there are literal layers in the film. If you haven't, if you haven't seen The Prestige recently, that, there's so much going on in that film. Um, really? I absolutely love it. Yep. Yeah, I think it's his sort of most underrated film.
2: I think I need to rewatch that because, um, yeah, the other ones I've seen multiple times, but I, I have not seen the Prestige since it first came yeah. out.
3: Wow, yeah, the Prestige kind of came and went. It's yeah, it's really, really great, um, and this is a fascinating world of uh, magicians in in Britain in the nineteenth century that I knew nothing about. It's it's just great. I love that. Um, I Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan. I am a big Star Trek fan, and that's <laughs> that's, just, that's a great Star Trek movie, and and it's a, and, it, and it's and it's a great movie. Period. Um, and see the last movie, I'm gonna say Wonder Boys with Michael Douglas. Um, oh, it's both like a, like a touch. Choice. It's a it's a really touching film. It's got some great performances, and it's funny. Um, it's I I just think it's one of those dramas that there's would never get made today ever in a million years. Mm-hmm. One of the dramas that like there's kind of nothing to it, but yet like there's not a lot to it. You're sort of like, why are we telling the story? But it's so artfully done. That I just, I just, I just love it, and I always like find it very satisfying and interesting to watch. So I think hmm. those are my five.
0: Those wow. are pretty good picks. Where do you think cinema goes from here?
3: I think we're going. I think cinema is look. I think the trend toward uh, movies theaters being primarily the home for um, big franchise event films is. I don't see anything stopping it. I think all the economic and cultural forces are pointing that way. And I think we're going to see more and more of the Marvelification of cinemas. What I think for every other type of film, I see movie theaters becoming kind of like vinyl albums, right? They haven't gone away, but they're kind of a niche. So all these other types of films, your Fox Searchlight, Miramax kind of films, um, they'll still get made. They're primarily made to be seen on streaming services. They will be released, I think, in a small number of theaters in mostly in cities, but um, for people, pro, if you want to go see it in the theater, that will be an option. You kind of have to you have to seek it out. It's only going to be available for a few weeks, um, you know, to see whatever the next great uh, Oscar-winning kind of film is. Um, but they're only going to be in theaters kind of as like uh, an option for people, again, in cities and to make sure to, you know, be eligible for awards and because the filmmakers really want it to happen. But uh, that's not going to be the primary economic reason they're getting made anymore. So we're going to see movies as primarily for these big event films. And I think if we want our kids to still appreciate that you can see other kind of things in the cinema, you're going to have to really educate them and make an effort the same way that um, that music lovers kind of force their kids to sit down in front of a record album and turn off Spotify you know mm-hmm. yeah mm.
1: oh I hope I hope people continue to make that effort because it's such an like uh, an experience Absolutely. to go to the theater and watch a film that becomes your favorite that ends up on your top five list you right. know
3: right we can't lose it do it yes. for the children
1: yep. people yes and,
3: <laughs> and you remember and you think about your favorites like you remember when you were in the theater and saw whatever your favorite film is yeah. you remember going yes. to that theater you it's a lot less likely that you remember sitting in front of the couch and watching something that you you know that you that you really liked that you saw at home those are not as distinct memories plus there's better popcorn in the theater oh
1: yes (laughs) definitely definitely
2: Mm
3: -hmm, yeah
1: well Ben, thank you so much for joining us today it was such a pleasure having you on the podcast
3: that was my pleasure this was a lot of fun
1: more Lisa Sandra and Kristen go to the movies after the break
2: I was watching an episode of CNN's new series, The Movies, and they mention It's a Wonderful Life. And I want to take a few minutes to share what that movie means to me. Let me start off by saying that I am a full-on Christmas movie nut. Every year in November, sometimes as early as the day after Halloween, I begin watching my holiday films. And I don't stop until mid-January or sometimes even later be clear, I'm not especially discriminating. I watch made-for-TV specials like The Grinch and Rudolph. I watch Hallmark holiday romances in which the rich box store owner always falls in love with a small-town baker. I watch the VH1 remakes of old stories like A Diva's Christmas Carol starring Vanessa Williams. I watch all the modern classics like Elf and Trading Places, and of course, I watch all the Hollywood classics from Miracle on 34th Street to White Christmas. In total, I watch up to 100 movies in 10 weeks. Some I watch once a year, some I watch once and then never again, and one in particular I make an event of watching, and that's the Frank Capra classic starring Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. It's a Wonderful Life. Released in 1946, shortly after the end of World War II, the movie centers on a man named George Bailey, who heads up his family's building and loan company in the small town of Bedford Falls. He has a loving wife, Mary, four kids, a rundown house, and suddenly, due to a misstep by his Uncle Billy, George is facing an enormous accounting error with the building and loan that will likely land him in jail. All of this comes after decades of George giving up his dreams so that other people can follow theirs. George, in the depths of his depression, stands on a bridge, ready to jump off and kill himself, when a guardian angel named Clarence allows him a chance to see an alternate reality, one in which he was never born. This exercise in seeing the world a different way, spoiler alert, makes George realize that despite all his miseries, he actually has a wonderful life. Now, on the surface, all this might sound schlocky, and indeed, there's a lot of sentimentality in this movie. Not to mention tears and hugging and praying and guardian angels, but... I'd argue that It's a Wonderful Life is also one of the most emotionally realistic movies ever made. Stay with me so that I can explain why. First and foremost, let's talk about the historic context of the film. In the aftermath of World War II, American culture, to a great extent, was focused on victory and unity and a new era of American triumph. But beneath the shiny veneer... Tens of thousands of individuals and families were suffering from PTSD and physical injuries and survivor's guilt and depression. Yes, there was great joy at the close of the war, but there was also great pain. It's a Wonderful Life reflects both those emotions, as well as lots of other complex ones like anger, frustration and hopelessness. Second, there's the seasonal context of the film. It's well documented that a lot of people get sad during the holidays. There are heightened expectations and money worries and family drama and stress related to travel and disappointments at another year past, often with regrets. Of course, there's also love and togetherness and moments that feel like genuine magic. It's complicated, and it's a wonderful life touches on all these feelings. Third, there's the message that many find saccharine, but that I believe in fully that no man is a failure who has friends. And no amount of money matters if we have no friends. Just look at the movie's miserable villain, Mr. Potter. Finally, there's the love story. When George realizes that being with Mary, means being trapped in his town for the rest of his life. He's angry, angry at her, angry for loving her. After lots of bickering, he finally grabs her and shakes her and says he won't be trapped because of her, knowing full well that he never wants to give her up. And the scene is so emotionally and sexually charged that the censors at the time actually wouldn't allow the two actors to kiss on the mouths during that scene. Now, on the note of the love story, I have to say... It's really my favorite part of It's a Wonderful Life. When George tells Mary that he'll lasso the moon for her and talks about how she should then be able to swallow the moon so that moonlight can shoot out of her fingers and the ends of her hair, there's a playfulness and worship and a sense of the future all woven together, and it's just about perfect. Before knowing me, my husband had never seen It's a Wonderful Life. On one of our earliest dates, we watched it together on his sofa. We drank wine and ate cheese and olives, and of course I cried. And when it was over, he said he was happy to finally see it and that he was doing it with me. Two years later, when we got married, he had my wedding band secretly engraved. Inside, it said, I'll lasso the moon for you. And now, I have one more reason to love It's a Wonderful Life. Because every day, a line from the film is wrapped around my finger, expressing my husband's love
0: and that's a wrap as they say if you're like us and can't get enough movies in your life check out cnn's new tv series the movies airing sunday nights at 9 p.m eastern and pacific on cnn and on cnn.com go from executive producers tom hanks gary Getzman, and mark herzog the movies is a fascinating exploration of movies throughout the decades and it shows the cultural societal and political shifts that frame the evolution of american cinema you can also visit cnn.com the movies for more if you liked this episode head on over to apple podcasts stitcher google podcasts or
2: your favorite podcast app and subscribe and of course leave us a five star rating
1: and a comment while you're there our show is produced by amy eason elizabeth roberts and emma soslowski Special thanks to Damian Prado, Drew Can, Bree Hare, Nithia Chambers, Lizzie Fox, Molly Harrington, John Adler, and Amy Antellas. This is Lisa Sandra, and Kristen Go to the Movies. Thank you so much for listening.